Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Very politically active, educated people. They're the ones who are most focused on the things that matter least, in my opinion, because they're so obsessed with this zero-sum, good guys versus bad guys, tribal battle, that they're not thinking about the big existential things. And the people I talk to who are actually really focused on the big existential things, they're not that politically active. Hello, welcome to The Clan Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This episode is unusual and fun and a bit experimental. Uh, I've been a fan of Tim Urban, who writes the site Wait But Why, which is a site of gigantic, I would call them explainers, giant explainers on all kinds of interesting topics from AI to human neural interfaces to Mars to how long we have to live. He's a very weird, thoughtful, deep thinker. Um, his stuff is all over the internet. You've probably seen a lot of his super viral TED Talks on procrastination, the whole thing. He's just like one of these weird minds out there just doing really interesting, really unique work. But recently, and in recent, I mean, uh, over much of the time I've been working on my own book, he started work on a project that he calls The Story of Us. And it began, and we'll talk about this a bit in the show, it began as trying to understand how he feels about politics and how other people relate in politics and pushed him all the way back to how did human beings evolve and what is going on in their minds and what are the wars inside all of us. And it has interesting points of convergence and divergence with my work. Um, and so we talk about it here. Uh, I interview him about his stuff for a bit. He pushes me a little bit. And then I think we get into some interesting and complicated territory towards the end. So I won't ruin too much of it, but Tim's a fascinating guy, and I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time, so I'm glad he was able to make it work. Um, as always, you can email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. You can check out what tour is coming for the book at WhyWe'rePolarized.com. You can order Why We're Polarized wherever you get your books. Uh, but here is Tim Urban. Tim Urban, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, I've wanted to do this episode with you for a long time, and then you began doing the story of us, and I knew what my book said in the background. It's like, I'm going to wait. We're going yeah. to wait for the things to come out. But now you're here. It's very exciting. Yeah, this is very good timing. We're like, we're both releasing as we speak. It's like we're, we're, <laughs> we've been inhaling for a lot of years. And we're both exhaling right now. Yes. Uh, yeah. A very, a very nerve-wracking exhale. Um, give me a bit of the story behind the story of us. What started you down the path of trying to build an idea of human nature and how humans relate to each other and how politics changes out from the ground up? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I never usually start any writing project expecting to get into the Big Bang or human nature or some of these, you know, major uh, huge zoom outs that I end up doing. But it, it's 
just that uh, that seems to always be where I get led. So there's always some impetus that's smaller. In this case, I've felt a little bit homeless politically for a long time. And I've felt some kind of gnawing tension with my relationship with politics that has, has made me actually want to withdraw entirely and just kind of say, I, oh yeah, politics is super annoying. And like, let's just not talk about that. Obviously it's like the worst. And, and actually Dave Roberts wrote a really interesting article uh, on Vox a few years ago about how like kind of in people in the tech world, and I write about tech, so I'm a little in the tech world, um, how they do this. They have this tendency to say, I'm not political. And he actually completely, it was the focus of the article was me yes. and wait, but why? And I took it, it to was heart. half very, very complimentary. Oh, yeah. Right? No, no, no. You're I, a great I, explanatory journalist. He, he, he was- uh, And he then was, half, how dare you withdraw? T- totally. No, no. He, he clearly uh, appreciates what I do. And um, I think he, he and I have a similar kind of style to write really long articles and go in depth. Um, but but honestly, that was part of it. I I, uh, I I took that to heart thinking kind of like, uh, it is really, really important to lots of people, um, you know, uh, in ways that maybe it even isn't to me. And it's, um, if I'm trying to take on big things, I, I'm, you know, I'm not going to not take on politics. That, that was one thought, but it was really like, um, you know, 2014, 2015, I found myself wanting to dig into this stuff and do it the way I do, which is really try to be nuanced and try to present, you know, all the, all these different viewpoints and, and dig into maybe a contrarian position. And I realized I was scared to do that. And that was kind of the impetus. I said, I, I said, this is the one topic. I'll talk about religion. I'll talk about death. I'll talk about, you know, weird futuristic things. This is the one thing that I feel um, nervous as a writer to write about uh, because of the culture and the kind of climate out there, the political climate. And uh, that is what was the beginning, was me saying, why, wait a second, why is this is a problem. If someone like me, who's totally independent on a very independent platform, I don't have much, you know, no one can fire me. If I'm scared to write about this, what does that mean? What is that? And that, that was the beginning. You know, I, this actually probably takes us off of our main topic a little bit, but I struggle with what information is encoded in that feeling. I was just reading this George Packer speech. It got published in The Atlantic about how too many writers today are afraid to write what they think because they think it'll put them out of sorts with their group. They'll get criticized online. And I've been reading some back and forth on that. And, and I feel some of this too. There are things I don't want to write because I will get criticized and being criticized is not fun. And on the other hand, I struggle with the implied view that people with very large platforms, which George Packer has, I have, which you have, shouldn't feel worried about criticism, right? We shouldn't have to worry about criticism, that we should somehow be able to play around with any idea, no matter the possible consequences of doing that, without getting some backlash. And I really go back and forth because I want people people to be able to write provocative things and true things that are unpopular. But also, there's this way in which I feel like writers sometimes imply that we should be able to operate in a consequences-free zone that seems wrong and also seems to me to be as likely to do damage as operating in a consequences-thick zone. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think I've been toying with this. And, and the truth is, um, like you, I chose to write about it. So I'm not that scared. Right. right. So, <laughs> so, so, so it was, it was, you know, I was scared enough to have that be interesting, but not scared enough to then say, well, I'm just going to move on. I, I, I said, no, this is important. And some part of me deep down was like, it'll be okay. Look, who I care about in my case is my readers. Right. And I have a very kind of specific, um, you know, the audience is all over the place, but they have some kind of, they have one thing in common, which is that they, they like in depth, they like nuance and they, they appreciate what I do. And I, I think uh, they, they don't need to agree with me to be fine. So it, it was, that helps me not be scared, but it's part of it was the, 
it's not that I was like, oh, what's going to, something bad's going to happen to me or to my career as much as this is going to be unpleasant. You know, if I write about something else, I'll write about SpaceX, you know, that that's, it is controversial in its own way. I'm criticizing, you know, Boeing and Lockheed and we're talking about, or I'm talking about oil and gas when I write about Tesla. I mean, the, the, you know, cryonics there, these are things that have furious disagreement in my comment section, but it doesn't light up people's tribal fires in a certain way that I think with politics, my worry is that it, it you write about it and it turns into just um an you know uh, unproductive kind of unpleasant mess that is so different than all the rest of the topics. So so what's the next step in that conversation you're having with yourself? What actually question does it create for you? Not should you write about it, but you've de- you've decided at some point to write about it. What is your question? Is the question why do I feel scared? Is mm. the question why will my audience respond this oh, way? Oh yeah. What is the question this formulates for you about the world that leads to this series? For me, it was very specifically like, what is this force that I'm scared of? What what there's this resistance I feel uh, that I don't feel with any other topic, this kind of threat from the culture that I don't feel with another topic to not write about this. And so then the question is, what is that? What is that force? What are the implications of that force? How am, am I imagining it? Is it real? If it's real. What, what does that mean? What does that mean for all the other writers trying to write about it? And for what what is that force doing to our politicians and 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 campaigns? And um, what does it mean in you know outside of politics? So I basically I started there with why am I scared to write about this? Uh, what is that resistance? And that led me down to like our ancient biological like evolutionary you know human nature. Um, and and so tell me if this very high level summary and people should read the series and it'll be linked and 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 it's really fascinating. So any summary I offer on it will do it injustice. But is the high level summary here basically that your view is po- when people start talking about what is coded as politics, it pulls us from these higher, more enlightened selves, this way of dealing with each other that is positive, some and open and curious, down into this much more groupist. Uh, ancient, threatened, attack-oriented, zero-sum way of communicating. And so you, and so the fear of writing about politics is basically that you are dealing with an audience that has fallen back like nine steps on the evolutionary ladder and they might hit you with a rock. Yeah, no, that that is well said. Like, So it's a little bit of um, an intentionally oversimplified way to look at a human, which is there's a kind of a higher mind and a primitive mind in there. And I understand that there's a lot of nuance um, that someone like Daniel Kahneman and other people have gotten into there that I'm intentionally not because it's kind of not the point in what I'm writing about. I think that there's ancient psychology, kind of primitive psychology that is, I I see it as a non-living piece of software. That is in us, it programs our behavior so that the output of our behavior uh, will help us survive in a really in a world that's really not here anymore, a really ancient world um, fifty thousand years ago. Uh, that software is still running. um it's it's it hasn't had time to adjust or evolve very much. And then there's this kind of um, you know, just a little bit more uh, conscious and wise and uh, and higher mind in us that can think outside of ourselves and can override that primitive software if we're conscious of it. We do it all the time. Um, if uh, if I if I'm in the kitchen and I really want to eat a whole bag of Skittles and I there's another part of me that says that's not a good idea and I can override the primitive impulse to eat it because the primitive mind in me thinks that those Skittles is an ancient is a really delicious fruit that is going to uh, be nutritious. So we do this all the time. And I think the areas that we have the most problems in society or in our lives are areas where we're not in control of that primitive impulse. And so when I think about something like politics or anything that activates our kind of tribal 
senses, I think that what's happening is that the primitive mind in us has been activated. And what's interesting to me is to look at not just how each of us goes back and forth on this kind of internal tug of war, but how we do it as groups. Because primitive minds in a whole group, the primitive minds of each person actually team up together and end up um, working together in almost like a wolf pack does. Uh, we can do this in 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 huge scales. Uh, and likewise, the higher minds in us can kind of team up as a support group that can help uh, police the primitive impulses in all of us. But politics seems in some ways like an overly broad grouping here, because at the same time that politics can bring out the worst in us, it can be to sort of use a little bit of more of, of your terms here, here, as much as it can bring up power games. Politics is also a place where it is often where we have come together to do things that more primitive versions of us could never have imagined doing, overcome biases that had been entrenched, accept peace settlements and agreements that um, had ended thousands of years of enmity. So there's something about politics that, of course, it can host our very worst impulses, but it can also, in, in a very deep way, host our very best impulses. And it always seems to me the mystery of politics and, and the question of it is, is how you get one to the other. I was talking with Sam Hammond, who's at the Niskanen Institute and is a, a thoughtful guy about my book. And he was giving me a little bit of a push on the Evo Psych parts of, of, of my book. And he was saying, you know, is this really just arguing that we're just irrational? And that's not really how I see it. It's more the way I think about markets and capitalism, that capitalism is a way of harnessing this tremendous power of selfish-oriented behavior, of competitive behavior. And that if you structure it right, that can be a real force for good. And if you structure it poorly, it can be a force for bad. But it just ends up forcing you to think a lot about institutional design and how you're going to, to channel those impulses that go into politics. Yeah, I think I, I think the same kind of tension between cooperative and wise and kind of, you know, thoughtful and rational uh, that we all have and this more primitive software kind of output. I think that same tension exists on these really high levels. And so just like, you know, if you look at a human, you might see them going back and forth in their day or in their year between, oh, I'm, I'm, I've been really healthy this month, or now I've been, I've kind of fell off the wagon and I've been um, going to bed really late and I've, uh, you know, you let yourself go a little bit. And and so we we, we ebb and flow kind of uh, in, in control. And I see that same, uh, almost like a fractal, that same tension happening on the biggest levels. And you'll see nations kind of cooperating and being grownups with each other. And then you'll see them fall backwards a little bit. Uh, you'll see them within the nation and then, you know, in, in actual international relations, you'll see, I think, this same ebb and flow of kind of grown up and productive and kind of unconsciously playing out a primitive skit from a long time ago. You know, you look at World War One. To me, I, I just see a, a Europe had sunk down on this tug of war kind of together over uh, however many years. And it hit a point where the, it, it, Europe had become vulnerable to a really ancient thing, which is you know, really um, zero-sum kind of tribal war, which to me is just a what used to play out probably 40,000 years ago with tribes fighting over little areas of land playing out on a vast scale um, because it's the same software program running it. It's just running it on this huge scale now. So one thing about this that uh, I wonder is the associating with primitive older parts of us and our zero-sum, warlike, competitive, conflictual behaviors and I actually don't know the answer, so I'm curious what, what what you think on it. But when I think about what I've seen, what I've heard, it isn't clear to me that man's or woman's, humankind's higher order cognitive processing powers 
are actually our most peaceful or even positive some ones. That there's a lot of evidence, for instance, that hunter-gatherer tribes, they had their violence, right? I've read my Stephen Pinker, but they also had a lot of internal cooperation and so on. And sometimes it's people who are very, very smart who become cold-bloodedly rationalistic and start begin talking about first-strike capabilities and nuclear weapons and so on. And so I, I wonder a bit if it's really true that when we are in our higher cognitive processing minds, we're so much better off. I have a lot of evidence in my book that it is the people who know the most about politics and often are the smartest to do the most self-deception. And I wonder, that doesn't seem to me like it's probably the most primitive parts of our mind, but actually that we misunderstand what some of our more higher order cognition is actually for, that we've convinced ourselves in this post-enlightenment ideology that we have this capacity to think to, to find truth when it's one thing we can do with it, but it can also just be used to align us with groups. And I mean, it's an adaptive trait that was not adapted for college classrooms. And so that we have a kind of sense that when we're doing this, we're falling back. But I think one thing that does too often is it allows sort of people who are operating in a zero-sum way from a very calculated place to get off the hook with their politics a little bit. All right, so that's really interesting. Um, I thought about kind of this phenomenon of the more educated you are, the more often kind of tribally uh, focused you are, you know, with with politics uh, or tribally aligned. Um, and the way I look at it is, it's so you mentioned the hunter-gatherer tribe that had good moments and bad moments, I'm sure. You know, they probably were able to dehumanize a rival tribe enough to be able to murder them in kind of uh, more stressful moments. And then other times they they might have been incredibly cooperative and empathetic and um, and and because the same kind of higher mind that I'm talking about existed in them too. We're biologically almost identical to yes. those people. So to me, I, I guess it is a little confusing to use primitive when it's really more that when there's a kind of a fight or flight survival, when, when some part of your brain is scared for its survival, mm -hmm. It activates what I would be calling this kind of uh, more primitive sensibility. And so I think probably you would have seen the worst in those ancient tribes when they felt scared, when they felt threatened. Uh, just like, um, you know, an animal. Uh, you, when the animal's scared is when it's most likely to bite you. I might say the same thing about people today. And so when you talk about these educated people that that are sometimes acting the worst with this kind of thing, to me, I actually see people who are scared also. But Sometimes it's not that they're actually worried they're going to get physically hurt or physically attacked. I think something more like their identity is threatened. Mm -hmm. uh, and our brains have a, a you know, notoriously difficult time distinguishing between our identity and our physical bodies. So I, sometimes I, I think I, when I look at really educated, you know, hardcore partisan people, I see people who have attached their identity to this ideology or to this kind of crusade. And that's actually bringing out their survival fight or flight part of their brain now. They will do anything to defend what they believe and to continue believing it. And they, the hatred they feel and the, the ability to dehumanize uh, that, they, that they gain towards people they, that disagree with them is probably a lot like a tribe that felt physically under attack 50,000 years ago. What do you believe having done this project or as much of it as you've done that you didn't believe at the beginning? Like, what did you, there's the part where you fleshed out probably some models and theories and so on that, that we've all had, and then some parts where something probably changed your mind pretty deeply or gave you a new way of looking at something. So what what is new in your mental model from this? I think there's been a very a deep humbling in the way that I don't feel like I or anyone else is really above this, the kind of worst things that people do in politics. It's really, you know, we, I see all the time in the major thing is people looking at 
themselves and and saying, I am not the, the awful way that those political people are. They do it. Yeah. But the thing is, I, I, I before this post, I might have said that about, um, you know, in the in the, the 2000s, I was watching The Daily Show, you know, cackling along with everyone else at at George W. Bush and, and Sarah Palin and all this. And I definitely had the feeling like I am much wiser and much more grown up than these people and my people. Right. So then as I started to write this post, I, I realized that, you know, who I'm scared of is not I'm not scared of Republicans because, you know, three quarters of my readers are on the, the left. And the people I was particularly scared of were progressive activists, very ideological, extreme progressive activists that were going to try to ruin ruin me. Right. But so so again, what am I doing? I'm feeling still like I'm better than than those people. Then I look and there's this whole wave um, that develops um, that feels the same way I do about about kind of the social justice kind of mob crowd. So they, they got labeled the intellectual dark web. And so I feel like, okay, yeah, those are my people. And then you start to see within that group, another kind of schism develops and you start to feel like, okay, wait, a lot of these people are actually not really doing, behaving well either. So I'm, and you continue to put yourself on this island of, um, uh, I'm fine. And what I realize is that every movement that happens, no matter what it is, you're going to end up with kind of the main movement we know that starts, which is usually starts with high-minded ideas. And it's kind of like a train. And then a bunch of other people join on because it's uh, exhilarating to be part of a movement and you feel part of a community and you feel like you have purpose and meaning and identity and all these things that are hard to find. And all these people are coming on for kind of those selfish reasons, not necessarily for the right reasons. They're coming on because it makes them feel great. And what happens is at some point, the initial movement starts to get more nuanced and it achieves some of its goals and it starts to change and become less of a crusade. The other you know, group of people are on the train that keeps going full speed because they, they're addicted to this feeling. And so they start, they keep going full speed and they're now so addicted to this idea that they're good guys in a movie and they're fighting the bad guys that they end up behaving badly and they end up becoming the basically acting like the bad guys to another movement that has to start to kind of counter them. And then that new movement becomes exhilarating. A lot of people say, yeah, you know, look, those people are bad, you know, and so all these people that were, you know, became scared of the new kind of social justice, you know, uh, most extreme uh, versions of it, then you end up with a bunch of people um, on that train who who feel too good about it. And so I just realized that I'm, you're all, no matter what movement you think you're on or what you're trying to do, the most important thing you can be doing is looking out for that second contingent that is going to glom on to your movement that you should watch out to not become a part of yourself. And make, maybe you're a little too into the feeling of being a crusader right now. And, you know, if you don't try to push back against that second train that's running parallel to yours, it will undermine everything you're doing. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. So we're, we're going to be doing this sort of passing back and forth throughout, throughout this interview because we're, um, it's a weird, it's an experimental podcast. But 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 let me, I have some more questions, but let me actually ask you. So, okay, so you read my book. Yes. Where did you see it diverge or converge? Like what what made sense to you in there or what didn't? So I I, I thought the, the book was incredibly interesting. It, it had a lot of nuance and, and it had a lot of ideas that made me reconsider some things that, um, the, the way I was looking at certain things. Um, and I think there's some areas where we agree we could, we could get into, um, you know, the systems versus people. Um, and I, I have a lot, you know, a lot of thoughts about that. Um, political bigotry we both see is, you know, a problem. And so there's so many different stories that someone could tell about how we got here mm-hmm. to this polarized time or whatever it is. I mean, we agree on the big picture. Polarization isn't something that happened. It's happening and it's getting worse. I totally agree with you. So I think the difference is not that we see that we're telling different stories about this. I think a lot of our stories are the same. It's that I think that you have a lens that informs a lot of the story you've told. And the lens is kind of race-based identity, uh, other kinds of identity. So a big part of your story is um, how the the South uh, in the civil rights era realign the parties in a way that has fostered increasing polarization and how you seem to see two broad forces. The Obama years, the kind of a, a younger, more diverse contingent was, had a victory. And then, the, then, then there's this older guard that is feeling, you know, this, this, you know, white, uh, maybe conservative crowd that is losing their power, that are th- is threatened by the demographic changes in the country. Um, and they had kind of a counter victory uh, with um, Trump, like, you know, Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back and the Return of the Jedi and this kind of, <laughs> right? And it's not that I don't think that that's going on. I think that that is, you know, that that that, that is true. I, I think that is true. It's that I see that as one lens I could look at uh, five or six other lenses. You know, one of them it could be about education. You could say that there's, you know, a, a growing group of people who are, it's almost this insider club. You know, when I think of elitist, elite, the, that word to me is it's a club. And to me, the entrance into that club has to do with going to college a lot of the time. Um, and and they watch a lot of the same TV shows. They have a lot of the same language. Um, they, you know, are, they're, they're often not that religious and a lot of other things. And then there's... Um, kind of people outside that club. For example, like another axis, kind of elite and educated to less educated uh, and maybe kind of an outsider in, in, in those clubs. 
they're similar, the two things, but they're different. Um, I, you know, you could list a lot of these different axes where you see there's there's uh, people moving towards the ends of them and then they're battling with each other. And to me, I just don't feel the same confidence that I think you do that the race story is kind of the crux of the, the main story. I see the only thing I feel confident in is that this is where I come back to this broad idea of like high-minded and like kind of primitive software. And I come back to it because that to me is, they're, they're all rooted in that, all of these divides. You know, racism is a classic kind of primitive divide, you know, and all of these things. So I could come back to the root of what I see, and that's the only thing I feel confident in. And so I couldn't say um, with confidence that this race story is the crux of the story. So, yeah, no, totally. One of the things I've been noticing in reviews of my book is that, and this may be how I uh, wrote it, um, people seem to think the race story is more prospective than I thought it was. Which is to say, I am very confident in the role race played in depolarized mid-century parties. So I don't think that's even really all that arguable, that you had a Dixiecrat, Southern Wing, the Democratic Party. For sure, the Southern in, strategy. So, yeah. But even before the Southern strategy, that you had the Dixiecrats there, and like they were there, and they were Democrats because of the Civil War and its aftermath. And I mean, that's clearly a race story. And so after that, to me, what you see is race stops being the blockage for the parties to polarize. That to me, the big question actually is not why we're polarized, it's why we weren't. And part of the thing I'm trying to do um, in, in my story is get people to see it a little bit more like that, that polarization is pretty common. We see it in all kinds of different cultures, all different political systems. It's there in multi-party political systems, there in two-party political systems, there in dictatorships, there in – it's like an, in everything. It polarizes in different ways. But um, Ireland has a very different history than us but has had very high levels of polarization at different times. Um, or France is a very different country with a very different history than us but has also had very high levels of polarization at different times. So the axes of conflict will change. But the structure in which parties begin to differentiate from themselves and have very clear agendas, that's pretty common across political systems. And so what was happening in our system that wasn't permitting that to occur, that was race. After that, what I see – it is still my view that the most powerful form of polarization or the most catalytic forms of conflict in American life have to do with things where you link race, politics, and religion together. So I think that the biggest collision right now is between what's functionally a rising, more diverse, more secular coalition, though that does not by any means describe everybody within it, and a coalition that is whiter and more Christian, a little bit older, that feels itself losing power um, and thinks that the, the game is being rigged against it. And that seems to me to be, if you are going to choose something that is the fundamental axis of conflict, it would be that. So, yeah, you said we were less polarized because of race, because we basically both sides were racist and they could agree on that in some way or they or they they were mixed in a way that was not good that we see as not good. Only because the the only thing I mean by we were less polarized is that fewer of our divisions mapped cleanly onto party. I mean, that is one way in which I think I'm telling a somewhat different story than you are, that my story is very much about political parties and political coalitions. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is that you had all of these divisions in society, but like you could think of them, you know, like you'd taken a bunch of matches and like dropped them on the ground and they're all like, you know, jumbled up with each other. And then at some point they begin like getting placed in a line. 
And it's when you place them like in a line like that, where they all line up, that you get these very powerful forms of division. But it's not that division wasn't powerful before. It's just that it didn't all go in one direction. I, I w- I'm wondering why, though, why we were less polarized. Because what I did, what I learned um, that was interesting just by looking at some more history is that the actual, the relative non-polarization of the middle of the century was the anomaly. That's uh, what I'm saying, too. Right, totally. But so, but is there something we can learn? Is there a way to get back there in a way that is healthy? Uh, and I, I was trying to look at the causes of the lack of polarization. And I see a few. I mean, one I see is um, nothing kind of unites people like a common enemy. Mm-hmm. So we had Hitler and then, you know, maybe a little bit less so the Soviet Union. Yep. And as much as I don't think that's a very grown-up way to unite, um, there's something about the patriotism that existed uh, that I think was um, helpful to have um, people work together, cooperation, compromise. And I wonder if there's some way to kind of foster an, an American identity. So I, okay, so just to pause for a second, I think about uh, emergence, the idea that you know one a, a human is a bunch of cells. Uh, that's more than the sum of its parts. So, you know, the, the, the cell can't do anything like what a human can do, but together they can have this magical, these magical properties. You could look at an ant. An ant is stupid, but an ant colony is smart. It can do all this stuff. So I always think about humans are individuals, but we're also uh, a piece of a community. We're also a small piece of a nation and even a smaller piece of a species. And I always think about our species wants to have a, us and them, good guys and bad guys. And the question is, how big are the giants that are fighting? Is it is it, you know, me versus you? Are we in a fight or are we together because we're fighting against a common enemy? And so when I think about the middle of the century, I feel like the giant that we all felt part of was was all of the U.S. maybe, more so. And so you had this big national giant that actually helped everyone within the country get along. And when that splits and you end up um, uh, between, you could look at a lot of things, media, going from more national to more tribal, um, you know, narrow casting cable starts and every tribe has their own media now and you have conservative talk radio and all of that. For whatever reason, we've stopped being one big giant and we've started to be smaller giants within the U.S. that now are angry at each other. And I'm wondering if it's if it's there's something we can do to get back to being an American giant in some way. So I have a couple thoughts on this. So one, and I really go back and forth on whether or not I believe this story. And so let me give you, like, I'll give you my case for it and then my case against it. Case for it is that, one, I believe that identity activates under threat. So if you are not going to have something threatening the American identity, you are not going to have as strong a form of American identity as you did in the age of World War II and Hitler, as you did in the age of the Soviet Union, as you did in a different way in the post-9-11 era, or at least the immediate post-9-11 era, though that didn't last all that long. But I think identity activates under threat. And so I have also made the point that if we went to war with China, we probably would feel less polarized here. And the Soviet Union might have been one of the things restraining mid-century polarization. But here's here's my counter argument to it, which is in this same era you're talking about, I think that if you look at American life, we are significantly more divided and more dangerously divided in a way that makes it harder to tell a story about a unified American identity. So it is true during this period that very little maps cleanly onto party. Anti-Vietnam War sentiment is equally distributed between the parties. The Civil Rights Act passes with more Republicans voting for it in Congress than Democrats, which is a crazy thing to think about now. Medicare passes with big bipartisan majorities. So these are divisive fights, but they're not divisive fights necessarily by party in the way we, they would be today. At the same time, 
you have the civil rights movement and you have freedom writers being beaten and killed. When Martin Luther King Jr. dies, he has a 75% disapproval rating. He's killed in a political assassination, as is John F. K., as is RFK, as is Malcolm X, as almost as Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan a little bit later after that. I always think about Gerald Ford. Fromm pulled a gun on him and shot an arm's length away and the gun just didn't go off. Like there was so much political violence during this period, urban riots, Kent State. And so I don't know. We don't seem, when I look back, to have been so much more united as a country. It is true that our poli- – like the way I see it is actually different, that the institution of politics right now plays a role of conflict amplifier, that if we give a conflict that is happening in the country to politics, it will turn it up to 11. Um, a good example of this is NFL players kneeling during the national anthem. Donald Trump gets hold of that, says, wouldn't it be great to see them all fired? Shouldn't all these guys just be fired? Say, get the hell out, you're fired. And so Donald Trump takes what is a real conflict around Black Lives Matter, it's in the NFL, and he escalates it. So Republicans then begin to hate the NFL and so on and so forth. Whereas during mid-century, either the political system would suppress things that were coming to it, right? It wouldn't vote on things like civil rights and anti-lynching and so on laws. The Southern Democrats played a big bottling up role for a long time, which I think of as a bad thing. And then eventually, it would only deal with things when there was enough internal party consensus and then cross-party consensus really to deal with them. And so it played a conflict suppression role. Either it would either suppress the entire disagreement or it would bring it in and try to and find and find an answer, like a compromise answer. And so I would say that institutionally, politics was healthier, although built on a bad foundation then. Um, but I think it's a problem for the story that external threats unite us because I don't think we were united. And like my super scary thought experiment is imagine the divisions of the 1960s in this political system. Like that is my scary – when I really try to run that story out – I don't see an outcome that I am confident in. <laughs> you think the divisions of the 60s are fundamentally more extreme than they than the yes. divisions today? Yes. I mean, we were killing people in the streets, right? In the civil rights movement, the protesters being fired on by the National Guard. I mean, we re- we had urban riots. I mean, we are at a pretty comparatively the level of actual activated political conflict, not like shit people yell at you on Twitter but people out on the streets with violence, it's much smaller. Yeah. To me, there's like, there's two kinds of division. You've got division that is, that where everyone has this understanding that it's positive some, you know, two lawyers in a courtroom. They don't hate each other usually. They understand that they're two sides of a coin that together is is this truth-finding yeah. coin. Have you seen Marriage Story? No. Oh, it has an amazing scene about this. Anyway, people should watch Marriage Story. It's great. <laughs> Everything you've heard is true. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then there's like, there's zero-sum conflicts when it's not about uh, two parties that are both trying to get the same goal and they disagree about how to get there and they clash and they, they're they working towards the same thing, but they actually see that their goal is to defeat the other party, right? And, and, and it's like they've forgotten the, the point and, and it's become the only thing that matters is the evil of this other side. And it's just this zero-sum thing where nothing is getting accomplished. I mean, am I correct that it sounds like you're saying that, um, that you, you don't think we can get to a positive kind of positive some conflict where we're united even if you know we're divided but in a united way without a common enemy i am saying that i actually don't think common enemies i am not as confident as you are the common enemies actually do unite us 
I mean, I think they do under a condition of extreme threat. I don't think there's any doubt that during the active conflict part of World War II, we were united. I think shortly before the active conflict part of World War II, we were much more disunited. And there's great alternative historical fiction about Charles Lindbergh winning the presidency and all kinds of things like that. And then during the Soviet Union, I think it's a more mixed story. I don't think there's any doubt. So do you think we've never been United? I mean, has what's the, the you know, is there a time when you think we were closest to being united? Like the day after 9-11. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but the right, actual World enemy War II can, period, right? Like actual threat. A common enemy that is actually scary can for, for a little while. Yes. Can for a little while do it. Um, and, and one thing I would say about this, which I think maps more onto your story of, of this than mine even, is that I think one of my intuitions is that there are certain kinds of threats that are very easy for us to feel and conflicts that are very easy for us to feel and certain kinds that we really have to work to feel. And so something like a like an actual physical threat from a foreign enemy. We were attacked in Pearl Harbor, we were attacked on 9/11. Like that that like really hits a deep part of us. We understand that we are not safe. Even when the threat is actually not that big as I would say post 9/11, it really wasn't as big as it was say in World War II or even conceptually with the Soviet Union, people felt vulnerable, right? People in places that had no reason to worry about a bombing felt very vulnerable. You know, and that's another place where I think some of the places where race gets wound up in politics, people are very sensitive to that kind of group conflict. Whereas when it's a fight over should China be a currency manipulator, what should we do on trade? Should we abolish private insurance and build a single-payer system, or should we have a public option? It's not that people won't get really wound up and that the stakes are super high. Sometimes they're actually life and death for people, but we have to work harder for it. And so I think there's a, there's a real difference between I mean, fights that require, like the psychologists would call a lot of cognition, and fights that don't. The, the, your primitive brain does not—the fight-or-flight centers don't get lit up by that kind of conflict. Yes. The way they do about, um, you know, a bomb might fall on me tomorrow. Um, right. Or, like, this evil group of people is is our enemy, and they're, they're attacking us. And there's a novelty thing with threat, right? So I was reading somebody saying today that— Everybody is freaking out about the coronavirus, as am I, um, in some deep way. But you should really worry about whether or not you've gotten your flu shot. Everything we know is the flu is a hell of a lot likelier to infect and kill you this year than the coronaviruses. But because the flu is sort of always with us, our level of threat next to it goes down. Or there's this constant thing of comparing whatever people are worried about right now to traffic accidents. And traffic accidents are always more dangerous than anything else we do at any time. And people who are terrified of not of Al-Qaeda will not wear a seatbelt in the car. The question of what makes a human being feel threat is actually, I think, a really interesting question with a lot of implications that there is definitely a lot of great social science work being done on it. But it I think it it, it makes it into our conversations a little bit too seldomly. This is something that actually both gives me hope and, and is frustrating, which is that if we could all and we're really bad at it, I mean, my job is to be thinking about the big picture and seeing what's really going on. And I'm I can't hold that thought in my mind for more than a minute. But if we could all somehow just actually grasp reality, like actual reality, what's actually happening, which is that we're on this little planet, our technology is ex uh, exponentially exploding. We have this huge population, and we all woke up in the climax of a movie without realizing it. If you look at all of human history before the last couple hundred years, it looks nothing like human history does today. If you divide the 100,000 years of human history into 500-page yeah. books. So every page is 200 years, two centuries. 
the first 499 pages of that book, we had 1 billion people or fewer. And then the last page, we've crossed the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 billion person mark. Amazing. The first, 900, uh, first uh, 499 pages of the book, we barely used any energy at all. The whole fossil mm-hmm. fuels era started on page 500. The first 499 pages of the book, we uh, got around with sailboats and walking and running and horses. We're now going to the space station on page 500. We have submarines and cars and planes, all on page 500 alone. Uh, communication was just talking and maybe letter writing, smoke signal maybe, for the first 499 pages on page 500, um, we are, we have FaceTime, we have the internet, we have all of this, right? So if you just pause and think about that for a second, and what the incredible anomaly of a time we all woke up in when we were born, you have to ask, what does that mean about page 501? What does that mean about the future? Uh, And you think about everything that's going on with AI or the increasingly rapid changes to the climate and everything else. We're in the climax of a movie, and, and it's very unclear if this is if we're if, if this is kind of a scary part of the movie that has a really great happy ending, or if this is kind of the beginning of of a very very extreme you know end, ending of a movie that's not good. And if we could all somehow, even if I'm saying this honestly, I should be more scared. I should be sitting there. I should be basically having a breakdown just saying this because it's so it's such a ridiculous concept. But it's just our brains are not meant to think of that. Think about this because we evolved at a time when nothing was changing uh, decade to decade. Um, and so if we somehow could see the truth, which is that we are headed towards like a fork and it's either going to end really badly or really it's going to be really great. I, I don't believe there's a middle ground when this much technology is exploding. Um, there, our, our power as a species is growing up. Um, if we all could absorb that we're headed toward this fork, it would it would be the common thing that would easily unite us. Wouldn't even be a question. Tr- suddenly, being tribal against each other would be like it reminds me of like the White Walkers are coming. Why are we fighting each other? It's like if we could all somehow see that the White Walkers are coming, whether it's a good or a bad although thing. my understanding of how that that show went is they never they basically did not stop fighting each other till right at the the and, end. And then <laughs> and then if only we had writers that could actually make the White Walkers like a lame one episode yes. thing, then we'd I all a lot be of in problems great with shape. that climax. But, but I really. I think that's a good metaphor for a lot of stuff. Like we we all woke up at a time when like the only thing we should all be talking about is like what is going on on page five hundred one. Like we're either in, in if you told me in a hundred years we were all we had conquered mortality. You people died only when they wanted to. Um, you know everyone was you know safe and prosperous and it was just an extremely you know you, you could think together with each other with brain machine interfaces and a million things I could go into. Or you told me that there were no humans at all in a hundred years. I'd believe either one of those. Why? That's the only thing we should be worrying about. It's so interesting. So one thing that strikes me is just your language here is super pessimistic. You keep calling it the climax. Not necessarily pessimistic. I think- Well, we, climax is the end. Uh, okay. It's the climax of either the 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 movie, in uh-huh. which case, yep, this is, this is, this is the big uh, dis- end of the dystopian movie, or it's the climax of like chapter one of, of a longer thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I do believe if we have the good outcome here, what it means to be a human will be so different a hundred years from now than it is today that we'll have a new, like a much more real AD BC divide where like we'll be part of very much part of whatever BC is that that divide that people in the future will look at. We, we're in, you know, a time before something, before something happened, before we, um, you know, when things were still precarious, when, th- when, when we, you know, and, and so I think we could have an incredibly good outcome when we look back at today and all of the uncertainty and the fear and the instability and the, the fighting against each other. And the, the, I, I can see a time when that seems really primitive, like the dark, like we're in the middle of the dark ages. So one, let me push on this a little bit, because I, I, I actually love this conversation. 
I think that there is a certain kind of thinker of which I count myself among, but it, it's true in the policy world, but it's very true then in this very different way, which I think is the world you're coming out of here a bit in the tech world, which is, it's like the lines have to at some point cross or they have to, like work, the graph has to work. And it always, I always felt this in the policy world, that people had this view that if something didn't look like it was working, we either had to solve it or catastrophe would happen. And that what tended to happen is we muddled for like way longer through bad periods than anybody would give credit for, but we muddled. And on healthcare, we still muddle today, which is where I think about this. And, and the reason I mention this is that it seems very possible to me that we are not in either a period that foretells endless accelerationism, right? We invent self-improving AI that leads to hypergrowth, that leads to conquering the stars, that leads to, or the tendency to drop off the cliff, right? We invent an AI that turns us all into paperclips. Mm -hmm. And that actually there's a lot of evidence that things are just slowing down, that we're moving into a period where limits are going to be worse, demographic limits, where we become a much older population in a lot of places. Um, we are going to have some computational limits that are, you know, Moore's law of some people think is slowing down. Maybe we'll invent AI, which acts as a deus ex machina in a lot of these stories for good and for ill. And you've done, I think, some of the best work sort of explaining the like the big picture exponential case for AI. But nevertheless, it seems very possible we're just not going to get there. We will continue making machine learning a bit better. But like as has happened many times before, we're not going to invent the super AI. Or even if we did invent the super AI, it would turn out that it has no idea how to improve itself. And so what we would have come up with is a somewhat dumb human. <laughs> and, you know, and, and kind of going through this, that there's a lot, you know, Peter Thiel and others make this argument that we've actually been in slowdown for some time, which is an argument I more or less buy. And that I wonder if there isn't just a human tendency to believe that our moment in the story is super dramatic, but that when you think about what's coming, it's actually not going to be extermination or acceleration, but limits because of climate, which is going to make our relationship to nature more volatile and our exposure to nature worse and going to make energy more difficult and the political downstream effects of climate. But it's not everybody dies or everybody goes into utopia. It's just... I don't know, it's like 5% better or worse than things are right now. Well, I mean, the Romans definitely thought that things were just going to go up from there. Their technology was was pretty great. They had, you know, you know, actual like plumbing and aqueducts. If you look at some of the things they had, it seems better than a lot of people are living today in a lot of ways. And then they actually forgot how to do all that stuff. They're, they're not, not the Romans, the Roman Empire went down and for the next few hundred years, actually, like it was, uh, it was a huge reversion in a lot of ways. And so the question is, this, this, this era that seems like it's just going up, whether it's going up towards a good place or a bad place, but it's just getting more extreme, question is whether it could revert and kind of just be a, a hill that, that the, in, the, in the big graph, it could be a hill that goes up and then it kind of plateaus for a while. And, and it seems like during the upswing that it's the end of days, you know, and then a lot of people, I do, I do think that we both have a, a, an ability to be, a tendency to be gullible and always believe that it's the end of days and believe that the rapture is coming, whatever, whether it's the Christian rapture or like, you know, Kurzweil's rapture of the nerds um, uh, to upload our rapture consciousness. Rapture of the nerds is yeah. a great line. Yeah, to upload our, our consciousness. Uh, and so we have that kind of um, kind of credulity, but we also have 
some part of our brain that believes it's naive to believe that person. So um, again, 50,000 years ago, the person who would come and say that everything was about to change because of this comet in the sky, they were wrong. They were almost always wrong because your your life was basically the same as your great-great-great-great-grandmother's life and probably in the same piece of land. And so the thing is, uh, we're built to kind of assume that our life experience, when nothing that crazy has happened, is probably what's actually going to happen in the future because that's that's what, you know, what yeah. you, the truth is, at some point, when things do change, probably the species will be caught off guard. So I, I think it's almost that the the naivete has in, in the past been to believe the person who says it's the end of days. But when I look at actually page 500 of that book versus their under 499 pages, when I look at the fact that we are in a true anomaly right now, it makes me think that the actual naivete is to think that nothing that crazy will happen because nothing has happened before because nothing, you know, my life experience tells me that we're not going to all stop dying in the next 100 years and that uh, people won't be colonizing the solar system and um, or that there won't be an apocalypse because that's never happened before and it's not happened in my lifetime. So I agree with you and that my intuition, otherwise I'd be more scared right now. My intuition is that deep down, I think everything will just kind of stay somewhat normal. But the, but the facts on paper really do suggest otherwise. So Peter Thiel can say there's a slowdown, but look at the incredible anomaly of this time. It's not like any other time in history. I mean, name any thing about human life. I said transportation, communication, uh, the knowledge, environmental impact, the building of technology and, and artificial intelligence. None of this existed at any other time. This is all new. The, the way it's happening. So to me, even if one of those stories gets totally out of hand, it, it, nothing will be normal about the future. I think that's really interesting. So let me try to think about this for a second. One thing that I believe is that in these stories, people tend to underestimate a bit how much the human race just bobs and weaves through cataclysm. Um, this is a book I think about a fair amount um, from a very bright guy, actually, a listener to the podcast named Jeremy McCarter. And he, it's called The Young Radicals. And it's about – he profiles like six people in the 1910s, people like Walter Lippmann and other sort of social reformers ranging from radical to moderate, you know, communists, suffragettes, et cetera, who, you know, in the 1910s are like, we are on the verge of changing it all. Like we are on the verge of everything being different. We are going to create leagues of nations. We're going to get cooperation. We're globalizing. We're, and then everything just goes unimaginably worse than they can imagine. You get World War One. You get the Spanish flu. You get World War Two. You get nuclear weapons. And so this moment where it felt like human beings had evolved beyond primitive brain, and the the reformers saw this very very different future. And then the the funny postscript of all that is that these terrible, unimaginably bad things happened. And also a lot of what the reformers wanted came true anyway. And the human race kept growing. We kept getting richer. Um, Warren Buffett makes this point sometimes that if you had explained to somebody all the calamities of the 20th century and then said, where do you think the stock market will be at the end of all that? They would not have gotten it right. And so one of the things I think about, I think about this sometimes in the climate change conversation. I think about it sometimes in the AI conversation is that I just wonder if things aren't a little bit more robust to things that feel to us like very dramatic change than we think, that even things that are really big in one direction or another, that we actually underestimate the durability of the denominator here. So one question I asked on uh, Wait But Why once is, would you rather be born um, in your next life as a 
baby to a middle-class family in 1985 or to the heir to the French throne in the 1700s. And after a lot of thought, almost everyone, not almost everyone, the large majority said 1985 middle class. Well, you family. never want to be before antibiotics. Right, exactly. Like that's the one you never want to be before. So that's a dramatic change in a, in a blink of an eye, yeah. right? 200 years. So this is why I, I agree with what you're saying. In the face of a bunch of typical human shit, you've got world wars, you have political, you know, tumult, you've got all kinds of normal human stuff. And this trend that doesn't seem to be bucked by anything of technology growing, which has so far the story mostly has been it has improved life. That trend is so strong and it's going up exponentially. And so when I think about this, I'm like, yeah, you're right that we do just kind of do our human patterns. And yet the stock market is going up. Right? The, 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 what I hear when I hear that story isn't like, oh, you know, Actually, we think every, we're, we over-dramatize everything. And in the end, it's just kind of the, a lot of the same story plays out. I see this one story that is not a, an up and down story, but it is very much a one directional story of technology exponentially growing and knowledge. And the thing that here's why I get scared, because because you could say, well, this is good so far. If the middle class person 1985 is better off than the king 200 years earlier, that's good. Right. We, we, this is officially like a good thing overall with all the pluses and minuses. It's a net positive. The thing that scares me is that technology is good for both good guys and bad guys, right? The good guys can do more good and the, the maybe the broad forces are generally good, but then the bad guys can do more bad, right? They, they you know, but the bombs get scarier and the, the, the bioweapons and whatever else. The problem is if both of those, even if the good is better than the bad is bad, if both of those keep going up and keep growing, the bad gets big enough. It doesn't matter how good it is. It can wipe us all out. And so I guess both what excites me and scares me is that I see this technology trend as not actually uh, an up and down, but something that has been very, very consistently going up in the face of world wars and everything else. And so if that continues, something has to give, you know, the, it's, it's that, that, you see what I'm saying? It's like, I, I, I agree. I don't know if I agree on something has to give, but I actually agree on the larger point. Something that you were making me think of there is that. Something I reflect on in politics as somebody who covers it and has staffed a newsroom around covering it, has been in newsrooms covering it, is there's a lot of historical lock-in on what we define as the central issues of politics. Now, some of them, I would say 100% that should be a central issue. I'm a believer that healthcare should be a central issue. I think climate change should be more central than it currently is. But there are a lot of things where I think it should actually be less of a central issue, like marginal tax rates seem somewhat less important to me than they seem to people who do politics. And I imagine sometimes a political system with very different priorities, and you could pretty much imagine one that was, for all the reasons of your analysis, which even if I think I would assume the scale is different than you do, I think the the general direction of it is correct, you can imagine governments that think of the two most important priorities as existential risk and innovation. Right, that the two things you should get right, no matter what else you're doing, is that you're just pumping money and resources and structure into the things that are likeliest to create game-changing innovations. Right, you just really want that compounding growth number to go up, and you really care about even tenths of a percentage point over time, and you really want to worry about a synthetic pandemic flu. Right, you really want to worry about biological weapons, and instead, we're sitting here debating you know, the USMCA, which is fine and it's not the end of the world. And, you know, but it's a very marginal change in trade patterns 
as opposed to like, I mean, look at what's happening with coronavirus. There's no doubt that we are not actually prepared for a true pandemic, uh, much less some of the synthetic things that are going to become possible. And one of the best things I think about Andrew Yang, I have some disagreements with his central story. Like, I think the automation is coming for everybody's jobs is wrong. And he and I did a podcast about that, and people should go back and listen if they're interested. But something that I really appreciate about him on the stage is that he's often like raising his hand to say, aren't you all focusing on the wrong thing? Which I think in politics, we often are focusing on the wrong thing. And there's a lot of culture about what policies get taken seriously and what conversations get taken seriously. And the culture of politics often lags the reality of the world we live in by quite a lot. So I agree with you that it's like if only we could we could all kind of see the true threats and the, the and and the actual major uh, levers that are going to change our future and we could all prioritize them like that would be great and so part of my my you know goal with as a writer or whatever is to try to kind of align what we care about with what matters most and that's part of what in this series I've been trying to do because to me the Political extremes, I I see today's story as, you know, uh, maybe 25% of the country is dictating the political dialogue and the national dialogue. Um, The the 25% that are kind of, um, there's a good report. Have you you read the Hidden Tribes report? Yes, I'm somewhat less persuaded by it than you are. Okay, sure. And and I'd love to talk about it. But either way, I I, I do see um, the very politically active, educated people they're the ones who are most focused on the things that matter least, in my opinion, because they're so obsessed with this zero-sum good guys versus bad guys tribal battle that they're not thinking about the big existential things. And the people I talk to who are actually really focused on the big existential things, they're not that politically active. They they feel bullied by the political extremists. They don't want to write about this kind of thing because they don't want to get their lose their job. So to me, that that is it's like the, the the wrong people have the loudest voices right now. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him. The sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield. So he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. 
Now I'm going to poke at you a little bit because I think you engage in the pieces in this in some false equivalents about both sides. So one of the things you do in that ninth piece in in the story bus is you quote very positively the head, and I'm blanking on his name. I used to know Jim Himes, uh, who used to run the New Democrat Coalition, but the New Democrat Coalition is the single largest group in the House Democratic Caucus. And it's roughly a group, I don't want to call them all moderates, I don't think that'd be correct, but it is a pragmatic, self-styled, problem-solver caucus in the Democratic Party. And the and you know, you quote him positively and say, this is the kind of guy who never gets any attention. Derek Kilmer. He's got a bunch of good ideas and they're basically boring. <laughs> and I agree that Derek Kilmer is a is a thoughtful, smart politician, as are a lot of the people in that in that group. If you look on the other side, I believe, if I'm not wrong, the single largest caucus in the Republican conference is the House Republican Study Committee. And if you look at what the leadership of that believes, like Derek Kilmer believes climate change is real and we should do something about it. And the House Republican Study Committee believes it isn't and we shouldn't. And sort of so on down the line, there's a lot of things like that. And so I would not tell you that I don't think like you got some crazy people on the left and crazy people on the right. But for reasons that I would frame as institutional reasons, but whatever you think the, the 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 truth of it is, I don't actually think you're looking at a problem of the wrong people have the megaphones in all directions. Like the large the leader of the largest caucus in the Democratic House majority is somebody you frame as a very sensible guy. And I think there's a reason that you don't have his counterpart in the House Republican Study Committee in that piece. Okay. So a, a few things about that. The most extreme people on on uh, you know the the real hardcore partisans on the left and right, you might be right that I'll, that they make up a larger portion of the right than they do on the left. And it is a small. That's the thing. It's a very small, actually, group on the left that are really extreme. I think they're just as bad as any Sarah Palin's or any Tea Party, you know, people that 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 have come around. They have so much power right now. They have so much cultural power. The rest of the left is scared of them and. I think that just because they're a small number and and the, the new Democrats are a much larger number, they get much more attention and they they really do um I think uh drive a lot of the the dialogue. I think they fire up a lot of the right in a way that the rest of the left doesn't do. So that's the first point. So it's it's not that I disagree with you, but I do think that the group on the left is is a formidable. Um but my main reaction to the false equivalency thing is that I try not to say that the left and right are the same too often because I don't know if they're the same. That's not even what I researched. What I know is that it seems unproductive to me for someone who is pretty clearly like a left-thinking person um, with a left-thinking blog overall that has mostly left-thinking readers to write a long series about what the right is doing wrong. I have some readers on the right but if I wrote that series, those readers are less likely to read it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, in uh, the, the example I give is if there's two siblings that have, you know, have rabies um, in some hypothetical situation. And rabies has kind of infiltrated the family. And one sibling bites the other and the, and the, the bitten sibling's rabies uh, exacerbate. And then they're more likely to bite. And so it's this thing that's going up, Right. You know, a lot of the people who have accused me of a false equivalency, they claim that the the right is, you know, the more rabid sibling and they're they're acting worse. And, and maybe I, I, I truly don't know, um, but that, that very well might be true. If that's true, what's the productive thing to do to talk about how rabid the right is and how bad they are and how much they're biting or to say we have a rabies problem. Now, what is the actual productive thing to do about this? And to me, the most productive thing you can do is a try to cause your own 
tribe, the people who see themselves align with you to self-reflect, to self-criticize. So look in the mirror and, and put out criticisms about what could we be doing better and then try to reach the other side in some way. Try to reach people who don't normally read you. And you do that by showing them, I'm not sitting here writing about how awful you are. You know, you've done bad things, but that is not my focus. Um, I'm actually trying to tell the better side. I think you've been demonized unfairly in some ways. And I think that, so to me, I'm just thinking about what is productive here. But so what I would say is that your side is not truly left and nor is it right. Your side, which is somewhat true for me as well, actually, is a certain kind of reader who thinks of themselves as cerebral, rational, above the fray, not really engaged in this kind of bitter debate, and actually probably shares a lot of this instinctual intuition that to like really be in here saying Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is right and the Republicans are terrible, doesn't that just make everything worse? Like in some ways, I think you're actually um, not challenging your side. Like So to, another way of putting this is I think extreme as a term does a lot of bad work in our dialogue. And so if you like, let's get off of Derek Kilmer for a minute. Like let's say AOC. If you made AOC president tomorrow, what she would try to do is mobilize the country around massive action on climate change. Like, that is her central political project. And in that respect, while Derek Kilmer is a very effective politician, I think her level of alarm over climate change is closer to what is substantively right than what most politicians in the country feel. Now, she, we can quibble with her strategy and does it make sense to include a jobs guarantee and Medicare for all and a Green New Deal and does that make sense? I, I think there's really good arguments to have on all that. But in terms of the level of concern, I think that she is right and the people who code as less extreme in politics are actually wrong. A couple of minutes ago, we were having a conversation and your point to me was that there's actually a problem in people like me who have a preference for a vision of the future that kind of says it'll be like the past. And that we have to recognize that maybe some of the people who sound a little crazy when they're talking about how AI will change everything or human to computer interfaces will change everything or energy will change everything or something will change everything are actually right. And so I think it is actually worth porting that idea a little bit over into your politics because one thing that influences my politics a lot is that I have a pretty moderate temperament. But when I look back at other periods in American history or just world political history, in some respects, there's always people on the extremes who are right. And I got to pick the right extremes and the right issues. But the, the truth often is not in the middle. And while I agree on the idea that you want to keep people from letting their – like keep them at a temperament level that allows politics to actually happen – at the same time, I think sometimes having a preference for that temperament can be a little bit blinding to who's actually right. And sometimes the people who are right need to actually be helped in order to win. I just want to make a distinction because I think, I think you know, you're making good points, but there's a distinction in there, which is that being moderate or whatever you want to call it, you know, people, you know, the word centrist is so loaded now, but, you know, being one of these, you know, the moderate um, for the sake of moderation and moderate in the way you talk and moderate and everything. I agree that that might be just kind of that's a, it's a dogma of its own. It's a kind of a tribe of its own in a way, and it might not be helpful. I think being alarmist and being extreme in calling out threats and calling out dangers and 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 trying to being extreme about you know reprioritization, like you were saying, I don't think that is the problem. My problem with someone like AOC is if she were talking about the AI threat, I feel like the messaging would be AI is a huge danger because of all of the evil misogynist Republicans. You know, and to, to me, 
when you when you include the and then it's because of the this half of the country that are that's the bad half. They're the reason that this thing, if that is included in your sentence, that's part of your messaging. You've immediately lost your ability to be an effective activist. Martin Luther King specifically did the opposite of that. And that's why he was so effective. Look at so many people who make seismic change. They they almost always are have inclusive language and they are very, very untribal about it. Not, you know, not every single case. But to me, the problem with the very far left, even if they are right about climate change and their alarm is correct, they basically do more harm to the cause than good by making it such an us versus them issue and focusing so hard when the truth is 43% of Republicans are scared about and think we should be prioritizing environment things. And it's like 65% of Democrats. There's a mixed group on both sides. And so I think my ideal politician might be a Derek Kilmer who's, I don't know, I don't know what he's saying that much, but who's being alarmist, who's being extreme about what we need to do, but is not thinking, not talking about it like a zero-sum game and that the bad guys are, you know, look, here's the thing. I think people on the left have this sensibility in other cases. So Obama never wanted to say, we have a problem and it's radical Islamic terrorism, right? He didn't want to say that, right? And and I thought that was wise because what is that doing? That is immediately creating this as an us versus them thing. It's blaming, even if even if you think that is what, what it is, he had a wisdom there, I think, that Trump didn't have. And Trump was saying, why don't you just say it? And then his answer, Obama's answer was like, what does that accomplish, right? That's how I think the left usually thinks. And I still think like that. And But they don't apply it within, they need to apply that to the the conservatives, you know, if 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 they treated conservatives with the same kind of nuance and wisdom that they would treat um, Muslims or any other you know any other foreign group, I think they would get so much farther. And I see AOC in her language and people like that about the right. I don't see that as any different than Trump saying, you know, Islam is the problem, and it's it's just not how you behave when you want to accomplish something. So two thoughts on this, because I think this is actually very interesting, and I think this is important um, territory on polarization. One, I, I just want to register disagreement on Martin Luther King. I don't think that's how he operated. And I think that we tend to sanitize social change in retrospect. We turn people into saints. Um, and so then we emphasize the parts of their legacy that everybody can agree on. Uh, I mentioned earlier, but when he died, he had a 75% public disapproval rating. And that wasn't because he was telling everybody they were great. It's because he was telling people they were doing the wrong thing. I mean, if you read um, where do we go from here or even letter from a Birmingham jail, he's confrontational in a very deep way. And he does tell people they're the problem, including people who are even putatively on his side. So I think that he is a more... There's a more of a radical legacy there to appreciate than I think, um, not even in, just in this conversation, but in general in, in the country we do. But in some ways, climate is the easiest example for my side of this argument. So I want to like uh, acknowledge that I'm choosing strong ground here. But you know, a guy like Dave Roberts will say in this conversation, well, what do you do with the fact that on climate, sorry, but Republicans are the problem? Barack Obama, for all of his efforts to frame this moderately, to take a backseat, to let it be the Waxman-Markey bill in the House, and then let Lindsey Graham and John Kerry and um, I forgot who the third musketeer was now, uh, Joe Lieberman, try to even then figure out a more modest plan in the Senate. It was Republicans who blocked it, as they have a number of different times. I mean, Democrats would pass any number of bills tomorrow on this. And so one of the things that I do think is true is that in political style, if you're going to turn off the entire Republican Party, you're probably not going to get anything passed. On the other hand, um, it's also the case, and climate is a good example of this, that if you're asking the Republican Party to help you on it, you're not going to get anything passed. I mean, you know, in my book that one of the arguments I make towards the end is that in an era of high levels of polarization, 
what we have is an institutional design problem and majorities should just be more able to govern because I don't think for all the reasons we've talked about and some that we haven't, particularly the ways in which these issues collapse into a zero-sum who will win the next election kind of game, that you're going to get the kind of compromise you want, no matter what your political messaging strategy is. Barack Obama was the most polarizing president in polling record until Donald Trump. And that's for all of we agreeing that Obama worked very, very hard to have a depolarizing rhetorical strategy, whereas AOC, I think, is trying to change internally the Democratic Party and try to change the centrality of it and have more of an outside in. It's not that I think what she's doing is going to pass a Green New Deal tomorrow, but I do think that from an analytical perspective, there's a real problem if you have an institutional imbalance where one of the sides has become more of a problem. As I mean, you know, looking back through political history has often been true, right? I talk a lot about how the Democrats were the problem on race for a long time in this country. At some point, that side sometimes needs to lose. And if people don't want to say that clearly, it becomes a problem. It's not that I'm trying to get you to say here Republicans are terrible. What I'm actually asking is what do you do in a case where one side is wrong? Where does that theory leave you? So I, I always like to like think about just like remove the specific issue and and use a thought experiment to try to remove the baggage from a conversation. So I try to think, okay, what if there were like um, aliens on their way to Earth and we thought that, you know, there's a disagreement. Are they going to get here in 20 years or 50 years? And are they going to destroy all of us or some of us? And uh, or are they not coming at all? Whatever. But we were scared about, you know, aliens are on the way. And it has unfortunately become politicized. Where now, to be a good member of this tribe, you have to be think that everyone, you know, make fun of everyone who's scared of aliens or whatever. And I were truly scared of this. Like I was up at night, like you know, so nervous. And all I cared about in the whole world was trying to get people to, you know, build defenses against these aliens. I would become obsessed with this the side that was anti, that was not scared of the alien threat. I would, I would become, I would, I would be spend all my time getting into the, what's their inner psychology? Why? I would go talk to them. I would try to really understand why. Uh, is, it, is it that they don't have the right information? Is it that it's become just too politicized? Is it that it's just, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's that, their, that their identity has, has gotten too close to it, that, 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 that it's not being explained in the right way, that the messaging isn't getting to their ears or not being understood right, whatever it is. And, and so I'd be, I would probably be spending a ton of time in those communities I would be trying to find the people in those communities who agree with me about aliens. And I would be saying, okay, look, you know, they're not going to listen to me. Uh, they see me as one of the bad guys. But how can, you know, let, let's work together. Let's work together secretly. They don't even know I'm part of this. How can we, you know, you're scared too. So we, it's like we need to, and I'm going to empower you to go and, and work on this. If I'm trying to work on something like Islamic terrorism, I'm not going to go and lecture Muslims on, on anything. I'm going to try to find a Muslim who is our, you know, who's already, you know, fighting this fight and trying to reform or whatever. And I'm going to just try to retweet them and, and, and promote them. Right. And if I'm, if I'm worried about, um, any issue. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm getting off track, but the point is I'm just trying to think like, what practically would I actually do? And the one thing I was sure wouldn't do is start being like loudly being like the, these people are the problem. They're the ones that, you know, grouping them all together and saying they are the ones who don't agree with aliens or, or aren't scared of aliens. So I guess I just see it. I'm just trying to think about human nature here. And if Republicans are the problem, to me, that just is not going to change anything. What's going to change something is saying, why are these going to go into the actual research that these politicians are doing that is leading them to all be anti-climate change, right? And on the, on the podiums, right? And uh, uh, Trump, all 17 of them or whatever, all of them were saying climate change isn't real or whatever. 
Why? They're not, these aren't evil people. There's some reason, there's some research that is telling them that this is a bad policy. Okay, why? Why? Is it because this one, okay, and then so how do we change that? How do we, and I would become really obsessed with Republican psychology and getting, so that's what I don't see. I see a lot of people preaching to other liberals about how stupid the Republicans are and how they're the problem. And I'm just like, that doesn't solve anything. But what if it's not complicated? So, I mean, this is part of the story that I end up telling in my book, but if it were just climate, that would be one thing. But what I see is this play out on almost all issues with a little bit more in an intense way on the Republican side, although I do want to say in this dynamic, not only on the Republican side, but just to say that policy issues are positive sum and election issues are zero sum. And what happens on climate if you're telling a story going back to the early aughts when you have Newt Gingrich saying climate change is a problem and we need carbon pricing and you have John McCain with a cap and trade plan in his 2008 presidential campaign and then Sarah Palin coming out after that and saying cap and tax would be terrible, is that climate change becomes associated with the Democratic Party because Democrats support it. But this doesn't just happen there. The individual mandate in healthcare is a very good example. Democrats are like, we're going to do healthcare. We're going to do it the way you did it in Massachusetts. You, Mitt Romney, like you're Republican. Everybody likes you. We're going to do it your way, not our way, not single payer, not Medicare for all, individual mandate. And then all the Republicans a couple months later say, actually, an individual mandate is unconstitutional. It'd be a huge infringement on our freedoms. And so one thing happening is I do think there's some institutional differences between the parties that has kept the Democrats a little bit more tethered to institutions that discipline their worst instincts. I talk about democracy and sort of diversity of news sources and academia and other things. But Democrats will counterpolarize as well, and you see a lot of evidence, particularly on the individual level. And so to me, the problem is that the people are going to work backwards in politics a little bit, at least, from their group incentives, um, particularly when things are competitive and you can win or lose, and the win or lose has very, very big consequences for whether or not you're going to keep a job next year in Congress. And so what you need is a capacity possibly to govern without convincing everybody of something that is not in their self-interest to believe. Look, the strategy you're playing out here, people have done it. Like you didn't think of, like we didn't think of this here. There's the citizens climate lobby. There have been a million groups and gangs and whatever in Congress. There's been endless research on the psychology of climate change. I mean, I've like Dan Kahan, a lot of the research I have from him in the book is actually climate change research. And so like, I think the answer to some degree is that we are asking people to do something in politics that they're not going to do. And so what we have is not a problem. We have a solved problem of human psychology in the sense that we understand what it is and an unsolved problem of institutional design, which is that our institutions can't work but under under these kinds of conditions. And so, you know, maybe the simplest path is not to try to persuade people, but actually just to make it possible for one party and also the other party to govern. How did so in 2008, couldn't two people have had this conversation and said, you know, look, Republicans are not going to come around on gay marriage and there has to be some. But in the, the, then they did. Right. Like the fact that 40, 43 percent of Republicans are scared of of climate change or whatever tells me that the, the tipping point isn't that far away. Why couldn't the same story play out with climate change because that played out with I gay don't marriage? think gay marriage would be the law of the land if it had to be a bill passed through Congress. So let me give a counter story to that, which is I think something like that is gun control, which is even an easier case in some ways because gay marriage gay marriage changed dramatically, but it's a Supreme Court decision, right? Nobody could filibuster it. And what ha and it also had this other quality of the a lot of the Republicans who came around in gay marriage happens because gay people are distributed randomly into families. And so you would have people like Dick Cheney or Rob Portman come out and say, I mean, Rob Portman wrote this very moving piece about his son coming out as gay. But also, as a, a, I think a fair piece of pushback to that was, 
well, what about the people who don't get to have a son in your family? Like, what about the issues where it can't be as close to you? How do you deal with those? So I, I get the frustrations people have on that. But gun control is something where there's overwhelming. I mean, forget 43%. For things like background checks, you get Republican majorities. Tax increases on the rich often get Republican majorities in polling, but they don't pass in the Republican Party because the mass polling and the institutional activity are really different. And so I don't know that I think that if gay marriage had not gone through the court, it would have been done at the federal level. I think it. I think the Republican Party is still connected enough to the Christian right, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I just mean in terms of its coalitional design that there wouldn't have been the ability to muster something like that and get it through the various veto points and so on. So I think gay marriage is an example of if you can pull something out of that kind of conflict, if you can simply change, if there's reasonable levels of public support and you can change the facts on the ground, people will accommodate themselves to a new reality reasonably smoothly. Um, I think that's true on things like climate too. I think if we pass cap and trade tomorrow, if somehow it just happened, I think people would be fine. Um, I feel that way with Medicare for all, but I feel that way with a lot of things. I think people accommodate to the facts on the ground pretty well. The problem is that you can't get anything through Congress. And because of that, things are always locked in the conflict portion, not the accommodation portion. But if voters, you know, if, if voters change their mind enough, do, doesn't Congress have to respond or they, they'll it'll stop it'll start being a really unpopular policy? Like on what? I, I'm saying on something like, you know, um, I'm trying to think about a, a climate policy that could um I'd also be again if you're thinking practically. I'd be like, okay, you know what? Uh, then if if the if the Republicans aren't going to come around on this, then how about carbon? You know, uh, revenue neutral carbon tax. Tried, but okay, but but tried maybe right. But a lot of things were tried for how how long was civil rights? You know, tried before finally the '60s. You know, started to make progress. It's I guess I think a lot of the, you know, and maybe you're an exception. Maybe Dave Roberts is an exception. But I think a lot of the people who call themselves you know climate change activists, their actual strategy is basically just another. Uh, lens to have um, an us versus them, you know, right-wingers are bad guys strategy to me, which is the absolute worst that all that does is it's just, that just ingrains tribal stances. I just see that. I just, when I look at the way that the left talks about climate change and how most activists talk about it and how it's all wrapped up, you know, if you look, if you Google climate change, feminism, climate change, racism, climate change, you know, there's a million articles on all these. It's been, it's been wrapped into every possible, you know, so to me, that is like the absolute worst way to accomplish anything. Let me, let me end this on a note of half agreement, half disagreement, which is to say, I agree with you that these are non-persuasive strategies and that I think a lot of people on the left, and I'm not actually, I actually think the climate folks are not a particularly bad offender here, though. I think there's been a giving up on a strategy that didn't work. But in general, I think there's a lot of people who mistake politics of personal affirmation and a politics of categorization for a politics of persuasion, that they are adopting strategies, particularly in online politics, that are about saying that they're right and alienating other people and that people pretend that's politics, but it's what Etan Hirsch calls political hobbyism. And I don't like it. Um, <laughs> it's the luxury of people to basically play politics role play. Um, right. I don't want to call it a luxury or not. I just I think a lot of people, it is an intuitive way to do politics. It doesn't work. There's actually a great piece of research we had in Vox today from David Brookman and a co-author I'm forgetting uh, about how do you like what strategies work for persuasion and persuasion happens in ways that are very emotionally unsatisfying to the persuader. It's not making people defensive. It's hearing things that are going to upset you. And it's, it's you know, persuasion is embedded in relationships in ways that are super frustrating. But if you want to do it, like, that is a that is great politics. 
That said, the place where I'm much more pessimistic than you is that that stuff does not translate into political change in the way it should. And gun control is the example I would use there where there's been huge majorities forcing events. And it's, I mean, it got filibustered after Sandy Hook, right? Like it just doesn't go through in the way that we hope it would, which is why I'm a fan of making majoritarian governance easier. Because <laughs> I think then you could use persuasion more effectively. So if you think persuasion is not really an option with climate change, then what is? Like what? What? Like I, I didn't say I had an answer. Okay, <laughs> I mean this. I don't think American politics is a problem with a realistic solution right now. I think the thing that moves voters more than anything is fear, and there's so much genuine fear to be had around climate change. And to me, it's like all of these people on the left. Why not? Why don't they start? You know, a, a Vox that is pro-Trump, that is pro, you know, all kinds of right-wing issues that speaks the language of right-wingers, all so that they can then in within there being extremely pro-climate change and, and and drive fear of climate change. Make it about xenophobia. Make it about anything. You know, figure out what causes, you know, a lot of things, certain things cause left-wingers fear, certain things cause right-wing people fear. Figure out what causes fear in in their minds and tie it to climate change. You know, just, I'm just trying to think as practically yeah. as possible. And all I see is a bunch of people using language of the left, you know, writing two people on the left, getting people on the left, you know, more angry at the right. And I'm just like, nothing is going to happen there. But I mean, if, if your point is, even if you did that, and now 90% of the right is is furiously pro-climate change, if you think somehow still the politicians will be against the voters there because of other kind of interests, private, then then I don't know what to say. But I don't know. I have, I, I have a hard time thinking if, if 90% or 80% of, if that number went from 43% of right-wingers to 90% or 80%, wouldn't how, I, th how, I think if you could get to 90%, it would be better. How about if you get to 60 or 70? Do I don't think, think if you got there due to the interest and support, but that's a different, I mean, I think that they, I think your creative solution there, that if you really, that, that if you care about this, you should create a, like a, like a pro climate change Breitbart is yeah. an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just, yeah. Let me end with our, what's always our ending question, which is what are three books you've read that you'd recommend to the audience? Um, okay. So um, I'll do three books that are totally different from each other for different reasons. Um, first would be, um, a little, a little history of the world by E. H. Gombrich. For someone who likes history but doesn't like want to work that hard, it is this like super comprehensive history of everything, as if like your grandfather were sitting in sitting around, you know, with a bunch of little kids explaining it. And that's how I like people to explain things to me, like I'm five, and it goes through a ton of stuff, and it's really well written. So it's, uh, but it's not talked about enough. It should be a much more famous book. Um, and then uh, on the fiction front. I just finished a trilogy um, known as the Three Body Problem. Um, have you read? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I should say I've read one and a half. I've read. I'm through oh, one and a half. It of the literally bodies. gets really good, like one and a half through. So the first book is fine. The, the first third of the second book is a little slow. That's and where I got a little. No, no, lost. no. You got to keep going. It, it's so much of the plot. Eighty percent of the plot happens in the third book. It's just an unbelievable sci-fi trilogy. But I think that's probably why I brought up Aliens because that's it's on my mind. But no, you got to finish it. Um, it's just like one of the best things I've read recently. And then third, just as like a self-help book that's actually been helpful to me is Atomic Habits by James Clear. James is just like a super communicator and really down to business and like wrote a book about, and habits is like kind of the, fixing your habits is like the the root of fixing everything in your life. Um, so I would say that's a good place to start for people who want to, to have change in their life. Tim Urban, the series is called The Story of Us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Tim Urban for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. To Roger Karma for researching, Jeffrey Geld for producing and editing the Ezra Klein Show is Vox Media podcast production.
more to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.